Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Welcome to the fourth episode of Design Your Life, from Lego to skyscrapers, the life of an architect. I'll be speaking to some of the most influential architects who are shaping our cities and the way that we live. We'll go behind the facade to understand what inspires them and how they juggle business and family life and the responsibility that comes with designing the places, cities, and destinations that we live, work, and play in. Today I'll be speaking with Tribe Studio Architects founder, Hannah Tribe. Listen in as we talk about how she founded her own practice one year out of university and the importance of thinking in a deep way when designing, why taking a collective approach is essential to delivering a brilliant project. Hey Hannah, welcome to Design Your Life. Thanks Vince, it's great to be here. Oh, cool. Um, how are you doing? Really well, thanks. Beautiful uh, day. It's an amazing day, isn't it? What did you do this morning? I walked the dog. I did, you know, mental school drop-off situation and then calmed down by throwing the ball to the dog in the park. Oh, Seven. my God. Great stress relief. Yeah, and the, this early autumn light is its like a little gift when it glances in. I was down at Rushcutters Bay and I was just bouncing off the water and it's really soft golden colour. Beautiful. And the yachts were clink, clink, clinking in the oh, wind. It was it's, great. It's I live up in La- Avalon, and, and, and the evenings are like that. So around five to six, it's just that golden light bouncing off of pit water, and it's just very magical, isn't it? It's really magical, really soothing. And you must be looking at across water into bush as well, which is yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is one of the gifts of Sydney, I think. And so your na- last name is Tribe. Is that is that a made up name or is that How your real name? It? <laughs> I know, good. and I should have been a rapper. It's a real missed opportunity <laughs> with a name like Tribe. <laughs> it's super cool. So yeah. is that your family name or yeah, your, your, ma- your married name? No, it's my family name. You couldn't change it, um, you know, feminist or not. It comes from, it's an English name. They were a family of clockmakers from Petworth mm. in England somewhere, and they've just had this cool name, the Tribes, or We Tribes, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, mm. cool. And I heard your dad was an architect or is an yeah, architect. Yeah, he is an architect, dad's an architect. He um, had a, um, his, he was a partner in a practice for most of his career and he retired from his practice about 15 years ago and has been working for me kind of unreliable fashion ever since. So he's, um, he's amazing. He's um, a real link to the craft of architecture. Ah. His hand drawing particularly and, and working out of, of tricky things. And what do you mean by unreliable? Oh, he likes. he's a long-distance walker. So sometimes you'll be like, Dad, I thought you were coming in today. And he goes, oh, <laughs> sorry, darling, I'm in La Perouse. I'm like, what, what are you doing in La Perouse? Just went for a walk, darling. Oh. <laughs> so he's, um, he's got a rich and varied life. And growing up in a creative household, that thing that shaped your perspective on the world? I think so. I think so. My mum was a weaver as well wow. before she went into um, communications and strat- communication strategy, um, but very, very creative temperament, I think. And also she had very strong autonomy drive and then dad always had his own practice. So I think between that kind of creative um, headspace and um, low-level entrepreneurialism, I think I'm probably you know, not really a surprise. Yeah, and and you've got two sons, I hear. Yes, two, two little boys. Well, they 11 and 8? 11 and 8, yeah. yes. And are they in a creative household as well? Um, I suppose they're often around the studio mm-hmm. and um, probably I try to keep work and home pretty separate and the only work I do at home is creative work. I try not to write, you know, contracts at home or, or um, boring letters. I just build models and draw with a pencil. So they they see that. Our older son is not very interested in drawing at all, mm-hmm. um, but our younger son is is probably more interested in drawing. So I think one of the beautiful things about parenthood is they just are who they are, mm. and they're gonna. They, you can already see that they're just making their own path. Mm. Are they sporty? A lot, a lot of Aussie they kids love are sporty. Sport. Both of them love sport. The old one, particular, is. Is completely obsessed. He loves playing of sport. He loves the team spirit, and he loves the um, statistics and mathematical underpinning of all these things. I don't even have words for. So he's um, he's really into. Oh, that's sport. interesting. So you, you you're you're saying earlier that your husband was a, a lawyer. Yeah. And now runs um, 
alcohol business. Well, yeah, works in alcohol. So, so does that is that? Do you think he's got that from from your your husband? Certainly, the sport thing. It's interesting because the sport hasn't come from me in any way. My but my family, my father and brother are quite sporty. Um, but my husband's very sporty and active and kind of goal focused in a in a sporty kind of way. Mm-hmm. So I think my younger son's very much like him. Mm. That's cool. Mm. Did you always want to be an architect? No, I didn't want to be an architect. I think um, having a father as an architect and um, dad's practice. An unreliable dad. He was a very architect. reliable. <laughs> he was a very reliable dad and um, a wonderful dad and a, and um, very reliable in his own practice. He's just a terrible employee. <laughs> well, he's a fabulous employee, but his time yeah. management skills are curious. Yeah. He and he travels a lot. You know, he's just having he's having a great time. Mm. Um, so in his practice, that kind of turned me off architecture. I don't know if you remember Green, Vico, um, that vinyl on drawing boards. Yeah. So my enduring image of it is like like late 70s, early 80s, hideous grey carpet, the green Vico, the, all these men with big beards and ground, brown cardigans with fags out of their mouths oh. and the big ashtray on the side yeah, yeah, yeah. and the and the um, parallel rules going up and down the Vico and the yep. ash is dropping oh. off. And I, prob- I probably only saw it once, but it's just this enduring image of a kind of, you know, texture of 1970s wool and the bag smoke and the green vinyl. I was just like, this is the worst. So it looked technical and looked very yeah. male-dominated. It was all all men. There was one woman after a while. Probably. Oh, yeah, there were the girls in reception. They weren't women, Vince. They were girls. There was one woman architect. Oh. Yeah, so it's super um, – there was no diversity, really. Um, and also, I think architecture looks really, really boring from the outside. To be fair to Dad, I think they're having a great time because you're working out these really complex things, difficult um, problems, synthesising a whole lot of disparate information, going through the meditative practice of drawing at the same time. So it's actually – like, you couldn't have a better job. It's awesome. But if you watch somebody doing a job that's involving a deep level of concentration and drawing threads from everywhere, I mean, it's it's not mm. a spectator sport. It's, it's really it's interesting because I've, I've talked to a lot of architects in my – and we do a lot of projects like Science of Wayfinding or Placemaker for, for Developments. So we're working with a lot of architects over the years. And I, it's funny, when I've done this recording, uh, the series, you know, mm. the from Lego to Skyscraper, I've noticed the kind of the intimate conversation like this it, what's one thing has stood out for me is actually how careful and cautious architects. You know, you're not, mm. but how mostly they're quite cautious. Mm. Uh, and I was trying to trying to work that out. Even even committing to do the podcast was quite a an effort to get them over the line. Oh right! And just because they're they they seem to be not spontaneous. They seem to be mm. very much like very calculated. Mm. And I, it must just come from the the architect's mind of, of mm. you know when you're designing buildings there's a lot at stake there's a lot of complicated and complex um process yeah uh to go through i also think um there are a few things going on in the mindset of the architect that start at university that i've been very vocal about and very active in in trying to dispel in my own career okay and that is the hectic and damaging level of um criticism and the delivery method of criticism within universities. And I can remember, I'll tell an anecdote yeah. um, rather than being general. I remember when I was in... That helps me. Fifth year. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Better radio, sure. <laughs> Less cautious. Yeah. So fifth year architecture, we had a, we'd been working all semester towards the delivery of, of a project um, and the crits were going on all day. So an architectural crit, you've you've worked and you've done all these all-nighters and you've been working, 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 producing a bazillion drawings. You pin them up. Your tutor comes to... Um, uh, your tutor invites a bunch of their peers to come and have a discussion about the work, which is a great idea, right? Mm. To talk about student work in an interesting way, to really engage in an open conversation about, you know, what this might mean for architecture. And isn't that the best conversation? Because ultimately architecture is this expression of our humanity. So it's a great conversation you want to enter into it. Mm. But the reality of that is that you get a lot of ego in the room. Mm. So not always because not all people have um, damaging and voracious egos, but but some do. And this particular um, crit session we had been working all semester was a big group project. Um, and we'd presented in the morning and had a really great discussion. 
Then at lunchtime, all the tutors went out and had a boozy lunch. And they came back and they just annihilated oh. a full afternoon of alcohol like... Alcohol inf- influenced. Alcohol influenced. They were showing up to each other oh. at, at the expense of these, you know, 21-year-olds yep. who had a lot of respect for them and just felt completely demolished by it. That's brutal. And I think the, the brutality, as you say, of that um, gets embedded... And I think um, the other thing about architecture, or particularly about buildings, is that it's really hard to deliver a building at all. And there's just so much that goes into it. It's mm. blood, sweat and tears. Yeah, yeah. And then to get that from a building to a thing that classifies as architecture is even harder again. And then to get it from architecture to architecture that's worthy of having a discussion about. Mm. So to get into that top mm. 5% of everything that's built is really, really hard. It's kind of against the odds, isn't it? It's against the odds, but they're the only ones that are worth talking about. Uh-huh. So we demolish each other's work in, t- in order to have a um, constructive cultural critique around architecture. It's really important to have that conversation, but it's we've got this culture of brutal criticism and you only attract it if you reach a certain level. So I think it makes sense that people are protective of their um, psychological space. Do you think people still are still taught in that way? I'm not sure. I haven't taught at university since I had kids. Right. Um, look, I hope it's you must changing. have been a nightmare. Teaching. Oh my god, I was so savage <laughs> after lunch. <laughs> Jesus, oh, gee whiz. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> I was slaying them. You, you talked about ego, and and I, I I was reading an article that you did with Karen uh, McCartney, and it said. Uh, you talked about the kind of how the collective mind works and how you love that. You mentioned that the architect's role is a weird one. You, you process around listening with an open heart and completely suppress our ego. And then during the concept design, we have to shift to mega ego, which I found is really interesting. Can you unpack that? Because I've often taught, you know, people said, you know, leave your ego at the door mm. for kind of collaborative work. Mm. Um, but never, and people don't often talk about it coming back <laughs> into the process. <laughs> and so when you come back with your mega ego, what, mm. is, what does that mean? Well, I think I probably meant then, and I might change the language if I were to describe the same idea now. Okay. But I suppose in that instance, I mean, you come back with a um, clarity of intention, um, the setting of a very high ambition for a project that ultimately is what will determine its quality. Or certainly give it no chance if you said low ambition. So in the beginning you do this kind of intense listening, gathering of information, open-mindedness and open-heartedness. And as that um, information starts to coagulate into a design direction, to get it moving forward it needs to be packed in really densely with um, intent, it needs to be given momentum, it needs to be given ambition, as I said, and, and that's going to come from the architect. The architect has to do that driving in order to harness the energy of the client. They have to have heard that really clearly, but then they need to channel that into an ambition and also to tie together all the disparate sp- strands of information from all the consultants mm. and to weave that into something that makes sense and is ultimately in line with the, with the client's vision. So is that ego, it's probably, it's probably still, it's not ego, is it? Because the ego would be um, destructive in that space or need to own everything. It's, um, I guess it's leadership. Mm, creative confidence. Creative confidence, mm. yeah. Go, to go from, you do need to go from listening to telling at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then no, if we do that, it won't be architecture anymore. I'm yeah. quite clear about that. So you take, you, you create curate the outcome so you have all these different people influences mm. and conversations and and then yeah. you come back with a, a direction that you feel confident with mm. yeah that's cool you founded your your studio uh, tribe studio architects in 2003 we we met a little while after that or before that yeah, no it I must think, have been after that i think after it very briefly yeah okay and you were were you working with Durback block or in their same I, space no i was working with Durback block straight out of university so in 2002 ah. Um, that was my first job. I would mm. think I was a really terrible employee. <laughs> really? <laughs> I got to work. Yeah, terrible. Why? Right. Smoking at the at the drawing board. <laughs> I, was, I was smoking out the window, actually. <laughs> oh, were you? <laughs> okay. Um, those were the days. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. I think um, that first year out of uni is, is a, a really tough time. You go from doing... You know, I was a really um, ambitious and successful student. I did really well at university, so you've... 
you know, I'd done six six years of sketch design, concept design, and written two really hectically boring um, theoretical theses, and um, and I had no practical skills, and I wasn't, I didn't understand how much the first ten years of practice were an apprenticeship in architecture. So, so it was tough. Was it a bit of coming down after that? No, not really, because I was too naive. Ah. Didn't, I didn't Did Neil teach you at, at uni? No, no. Oh, Camilla? At uni then. No, neither of them. Um, and do you think that their work influenced you? You said you're only there for a short period of time. Yeah, I was only there for a short period of time. Oh, look, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of their work, I think. I think certainly the difference between my dad's practice, which um, was very commercially minded, mm-hmm. and Neil and Camilla's, which at the time wasn't commercially minded at all, um, I think it was really great to try and to see those those two um, poles within the profession and navigate my own path somewhere in the Did middle. it seem like chaos to you? Uh, if your dad was so structured? No, no, I wasn't. I didn't have the skills to be able to assess it critically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, Neil was a wonderful guy and good friend. I interviewed him. He's part of the series as well, so I've been a huge fan of, of their work uh, yeah. over the years. Yeah, so why did, why did you start your practice? Um, well, it was kind of an accident. I didn't really want to. So um, I. So that was after the one year of yeah. working with those guys. Wow, that's pretty yeah. brave. I know, crazy. So I moved, um, I thought maybe I'd move country. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was teaching at university with great kindness and compassion. Oh. And, <laughs> and I was painting. So I, I thought maybe I wanted to be a painter or a different kind of designer, not necessarily an architect. Mm-hmm. Architecture seems slow and difficult and unruly in and just too much well, um, in, that, in that one year yeah well, i think i got an idea of how much i didn't know oh my god so yeah. neil put you off architecture no well i was never really into it in the first place no, neil <laughs> oh. definitely didn't put me off architecture what yeah. after you did for six years and then you found that out i know well it's a really great degree like really great so there's um a lot of history and theory in it i also did sociology i did some landscape architecture Loved sociology. Um, I did some English. I did a lot of art and um, art studios. So it was just couldn't have been better, wow. as well as design. So the design studio was a major thing. So I really loved the study. I didn't like the practice, and in fact, I didn't. I didn't feel committed to a career as an architect until I was about five years into my own practice. Mm. I was on site, and I was like smelling the sawdust and the cement, and like, oh, this is. Best. You love that, yeah. Oh my god, it's amazing. Amazing. It's the best. And so was it just you in the beginning for a while or yeah, how, how long did it take yeah. before to get some projects coming well, through? Well, I just a couple of friends said, Hey, can you do a reno for me? So I did that for and that's what we did kind of for five years and eventually started growing from you know, did a tiny bit of retail and some commercial fit out and you know, now we're across a bazillion sectors. I really love it. I guess I love it with the with the love of a of a convert. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Well, you've turned that around. Yeah. And and uh, it's interesting that you said earlier you have like seventeen people working with you. It's probably at architecture school, uni. They probably didn't teach you how to run a business necessarily. No. How did you pick that up? Well, getting it wrong a lot. I think seems to be my um, mo. Mm-hmm. And then when I had kids. I learned to delegate, which has just been the best thing ever. And I think it's something that happened to me younger than most architects because, um, you know, you don't have to delegate. You can keep working 60 yeah, hours yeah. a week, all night, doing everything, doing a bad job of all the stuff you don't understand. Yeah, yeah. So I've been really good at um, bringing in skills that I didn't have in that running a business space. So that's been, that's been great. And your dad been coaching you through all that? Not so much. I think um, so. Dad's um, business is much more commercial, mm. and I think um, he disagrees with a lot of the more creative decisions I make. So no, I've charted my own path. I think relative to does he tell you to say I told you so? Or he's pretty good about that. He'll occasionally he'll be, um, you know, as we've moved from doing um, a lot of small projects to fewer larger projects, he's been like, see, but then also he often do a document review and he'll be like, ah, oh, what are you doing that for? That looks stupid kind of thing. And then he'll come and see the, the project and be like, oh, okay, which is really nice. I don't think it matters how old you are. Having the approval of your parents still feels pretty lovely. Yeah, that's always nice. Mm. 
um, as long as they don't gloat too much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm was, working on being a gloaty parent myself. Oh. <laughs> That's one of my aspirations. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening in, stop gloating so much. Um, so <laughs> I was looking at your website this morning. I was just like amazed by the... I mean, I know you do more than houses now, mm. but the number of homes that you've done, yeah. residential, is incredible. Mm, and every single one, the, the, no two look the same. They're all yeah. very, quite var- varied in their, yeah. how you've executed those. Yeah, it's a really um, terrible brand position to have, I think. And I th- Why? Well, I think a lot of people want to know what they're going to get. And whereas we say, well, what do you want? And it's been a really interesting creative process to try and enter into... Um, the minds of our clients and work with trying somehow to deliver their vision rather than... Um, I think houses are really interesting and we'll always do houses. Yeah. It's the only um, building type where you're working with the people who live in them. And so they're absolutely about that family unit whatever shape it is, Mm. whereas all the other types, you're working for somebody who's building for somebody else. Mm. So with that, we can really experiment. It's Mm. not about us at all. It's about them. And and I think that's allowed us to explore a lot of different um, architectural idioms to really dive into architectural heritage, and um, which I love. I really love pulling Mm. old buildings apart and then putting them back together Mm. in a way that makes sense. Mm. So, um, yeah, we've built a lot of houses. Yeah, it's amazing. And do, have you found over the years that you know when you've had clients, do you, do you, do you enjoy the clients' involvement in that, or are there times you just you prefer having just you know get a kind of top view of what they want, mm. and then you go away and come back with solutions? Um, I think it really depends on the on the individual client. Some of the most interesting clients we've had are um, not visual or aesthetic people at all, and they will commission the most um, ambitious projects weekly mm. whereas people which which I found surprising that's been a surprise oh that's cool yeah yeah I, I really like working closely with clients but there is a point where they've got to leave us alone yeah and I think there's that very boring part of um, very boring for the client really fun for us we were working it all out okay so this is the vision now we've got to deliver it and the mm. You know, the pipes can't clash with the beams, can't clash with the electrical. So, you know, we just need them to just um, give us space to deliver that part of the, mm. of the process. So do you design houses the way your clients want to live or how you think they should want to, should live? Oh, no, de- de- definitely wouldn't be didactic about how anyone should live. Um, we try to understand how they live and I think um, how, and how they want to live. So I think there's something inherently aspirational about dreaming about the house of the future because you're dreaming about mm. your family growing up or yourself having more leisure time or having parties or being able to pursue your hobbies and your interests. So there's this um, really potent dreaming that goes into thinking about a house. So we try to engage with that mm. and um, and deliver on it. And what what are the kind of once once a house is built? Because it's a long process, isn't it, mm. and often quite yeah. stressful. Mm. And full of surprises. What what's kind of a, what have people said when they've been in the house for a, f- a few days or a few weeks or a, you know a year or whatever? We have had um, one client who sent us a text every day for a year to tell us to make an individual observation about the house every day. So it was like a piece of conceptual art. It's pretty cool. Um, but That's a few neat. of the fun ones. Not complaining, but positive. No, not feedback. complaining. <laughs> it's leaking. Where's the plug it. hole? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, to say it, w- it was really a very beautiful exercise. And then towards the end of the year, the um, text became more poetic. So when the sun hits the water in the pool and it hits the ceiling, yeah. it looks like a David Hockney. And and could you have planned for that? Oh, are these accidental about, things? I think there are, there are always delightful surprises. Mm. You plan – well, we always plan to use light in a way that um, – where there's a change, it changes the form across the day and across the year. The light in Sydney is so amazing. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a construction tool on its own. Yeah. That way that we get these deep black shadows and really intensely lit surfaces externally and then what that means in an interior of a space. Well, that's really fun mm. material to play with. But also that thing about architecture is so static. 
and you want it to be really permanent as a um, sustainability initiative. You don't want to knock things down. You want them to have, mm. you know, presence and a lasting quality. So then how can you enliven it by controlling the behaviour of light in a space? A kind of question came to my head just now was just around can that you design a house for a particular person or family mm. use and it's to the you work with them on kind of unpacking that what happens when someone else buys that place mm. and moves in do they have the same experience i'm not sure i mean not texting you not te- we haven't been texted by <laughs> new owners <laughs> we've lost some clients because they've said hey can you do up our house and they've gone and bought a house that we did somewhere else and they're like oh i just wanted a tri studio house i didn't need to go through the process oh geez. they haven't no that's good that's fine how, ta- uh, how tailored is it, I guess I'm saying, you know, um, for that to those people? And, and is that tailoring, is, is what people are saying during the process and the brief and all that, is, mm. it, is there a lot of similarities each time? Um, I think one of the really, um, I think when we look, we get a heritage house, like a really interesting old beauty, mm. and we're converting that for a family with kids, there, we have to push that house through an inversion in its um, in the values of the house. So we've got this um, beautiful big arts and crafts house that we're um, teasing apart in Bellevue Hill at the moment, and it's this gorgeous, big old dumpy dame. Mm. But the arts and crafts is all about interiority and looking inwards and views views internally. The front garden was really flash, and you presented a beautiful to the street and the back garden was really utilitarian so clothes were dried there and that's where the food was was grown and so on and I think the way we live now is that we want to invert that that the the leisure space of the house becomes the back garden Mm -hmm. so then how do you honor the um, bones of the house the intention of that house but also update it for contemporary life Mm -hmm. and there's an embedded feminist issue in all um, heritage house restoration where the the engine room of the house, the laundry and the kitchen and the workspaces were either the spaces where the servants were sequestered or the women were hidden to God. do that work. So when we take that house and and turn it into something where domestic labour is a shared mm. um, role, mm-hmm. what does that mean spatially? Mm. And I'm really interested in that because I yeah. think that's really at the heart of how we live and how... You know, ultimately the way we build housing is how we express ourselves as a culture. And that seems to be the big move. Wow. Mm. And you talk about ornate detail. You're kind of interested in ornate details because mm. obviously in the past it's been kind of a simplicity and the opposite of that, I guess, in architecture mm. recently. Yeah, I'm interested in, um, I suppose when we do a heritage project, it's a unpacking the um, logic of, of that place. So I've just finished a big Victorian house. And the Victorian is so interesting because it's ultimately modular. It's a modular construction type, much more akin to modern construction than you'd think by looking at it because, you know, the Victorians, the big steep roofs and yeah. the frills on everything. They were like kits, weren't they, really? Yeah, but they were kits. And you'd go to the moulding shop and you'd buy your angels and your cherubs and, and your frilly cornices but it was all off the rack and all modular and pre-made so then when we add on to a victorian house how can we embody that spirit and logic of that construction without doing a gross pastiche Mm. and then the other thing in heritage is you see that um construction floors are covered with decoration is the architecture i graduated into is like well you can't have any construction floors you need everything needs to be millimeter precise, but people can't afford to build like that, in in all circumstances. So there need to be other other ways to build, and I'm really interested in exploring that and mm. taking cues from the past. Mm. Oh, really interesting. Mm. Um, has sustainability always been a non-negotiable for you when you're designing homes for your clients? Yeah, I think um, we just have to be responsible, and. Buildings need to last. I think that embodied energy in a building, it, it's really, um, it's a huge responsibility to spend those materials. Mm. Um, and so we need to be as responsible as as we can in doing so. In how and what about, um, do your houses that you do now, are they off the grid or are they you looking at kind of alternative we're energies? We're doing some off the grid. We haven't done it off the grid in an urban area. 
but um, we've got some remote houses that are there or almost there. Yeah, I'm really interested in doing that. I'm also interested in how we live in in cities and because being off the grid in, is in a city is, is pretty tough, particularly when it comes to sewer. But how could, <laughs> <laughs> um, how could we be more communal about it? Could we, could we see ourselves in smaller cells? So instead of having huge centralised plants, mm. you lose um, energy along the system. How could we, how could we more, be more sustainable in a cellular way? Yeah, exactly. So how, how important is it then to ensure that we as a society are building environmentally conscious buildings for the generations to come? Oh, I think it's so important. It's really the only important thing. You can see it's now Bill Gates's um, big mission once he tackles agriculture is to tackle use of um, concrete and steel. And I think um, we're just, um, we need to be really responsible with the embodied energy in our buildings, but also our carbon footprints. It's on us, right? I mean, I kind of woke up from the from the snooze of having toddlers and discovered I was the adult one of the adults in the room, and now's the time we got to get this we got to get this happening. Because the younger generation is equally passionate about it and pushing it as well, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, less passive than previous. Yeah. You use a lot of brick in your work in such an elegant, no nonsense way. Are you surprised that some people still see brick as a low end product and finish and haven't caught up onto the environmental benefits. Well, I really love brick. I think there's something um, very Sydney about brick. I think we've got this, you know, in our older um, areas, you, you've got a language of kind of brick and brick tile and tr- tree canopy and, and sunlight. So the way the sun hits a brick is um, feels like home. Mm. Bricks smell amazing after the mm. rain. I also really love that they are... They register the hand in construction so that, you know, they're made out of earth, water and fire and then they're at a scale that you can pick them up and lay them in a wall Mm -hmm. and then you can read that craft and you can read the hand, the human hand in the building. Mm. So they're – but, you know, in terms of using a lot of them, we're pretty agnostic about building materials. So the first project we did was like a really abstracted white box. We did 10 years of white boxes. Mm -hmm. Then we did a brick house. We seem to be in our 10 years of using a lot of bricks. Um, I think there's a place for all sorts of different materials. So I'm not, I'm not um, wedded to them as the only way to build, but I think they do have a v- real particularity in certain parts of, of Sydney and a grace and romance. Mm. It seems to be the last few years, last five years or so, people are really taking brick and, and pushing the, uh, the boundaries with it. Mm. So you get a lot of curves and unusual shapes happening, yeah. which instead of just being a straight brick wall. Mm. I guess the worry then is the... Um, we've got to always worry about trend and fashion in architecture, I think. Mm. But I think beautifully um, detailed and constructed brick buildings using bricks that are good bricks, because there are good bricks and bad bricks. Um, there's a real romance to this. If you think about that Tonkins like a Greer project in the reservoir yeah. in Paddington, and the way the Victorians built brick arches and mm. just the, that permanence and timelessness yeah. and connection we have to them. The skill with that's incredible. Yeah, or the UTS um, polychromatic brickwork, those Victorian bricks, you know, in that time when um, really ornately laid bricks in these really grandiose gestures was an expression of the might of the empire. Mm. There's something, um, they're very evocative. Yeah, it's kind of permanence and the, versus yeah. the, you know, the two-by-four versions that we see coming up. What, what is, do you have a favourite material? Do you have a palette that you always work with? No. Completely agnostic about materials. We're kind of interested in exploring them. Often, you know, how we'll start something. Well, for instance, we've got a new project and we were talking about um, what ambition we were going to apply to it. Like, what was this going to be a project about? And it's going to be a project about plantation timber. So how can we... Um, build a language of permanence into this particular project that only uses plantation timber. And that sets up a whole set of constraints. So spans can only be so big. Um, We need to think about long grain and end grain in terms of durability. So then the starting with the material is going to have an impact on form, design, detail, mood, feel, everything. And that, for me, is... 
a really interesting way to begin. We often begin like that with brick if somebody's mad for bricks. But I don't I don't have a favourite. I think it's all a great palette to be mm. using. I don't – I mean, I would never use – I don't like really – I'm reluctant to lean into some new technology in building. I think, you know, the past 15 years has been terrible problems with that rendered polystyrene stuff. I'm not into any of that stuff. Mm. I think we have a responsibility to build in a way that things will last. What about toxicity? There's been a lot of materials that have are toxic. Do you yeah. stay away from them? Yeah, absolutely. And interested in um, also sick building syndrome. So, you know, we've got an electromagnetic radiation specialist on some things, um, a lot of toxic building materials. I mean, I just got to look at the problems with asbestosis and now silica the silicon problem with um, cutting composite materials. It's not – it's just terrible. It's still happening. Yeah. And then radioactive granites in kitchens in Northern America. Jesus. Um, I mean, it's just – it's nuts. We need to be careful. Wow. Mm. Is that often discussed in projects? Do clients say, yes. hey, you know, I want to make sure not this paint you're using is not toxic or yeah. cancerous or whatever? Some people do. Some people are really, really aware about it. Other um, people are oblivious to it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a kind of mentality in parts of the building industry of, oh, this is how we've always done it, and a real reluctance to change. You can see that as a um, – there's a stagnation in parts of the industry, and we try not to work with people who think like that. Wow. So buildings can be designed – your buildings are designed to give you energy and, I guess, mm. make you feel good in them. Um, yeah. Last I thing mean, you want you is the – you do it, right? Yeah, if you last thing you want is the building – without you knowing, is actually mm. making you sick. There's a real problem in Sydney particularly because we've got very humid atmosphere and we've got some really relaxing, terrible construction. And particularly in older brick buildings that don't have adequate ventilation, you can get some pretty hectic moulds in them. So it's it's a serious issue. How, how, does, how does one do a health check on your building? Well, there are building biologists, um, so it's a specialty field. They're pretty amazing and they can... Mm. Um, Test for allergens um, and toxins within the um, air environment. Be good to bring one round with you when we're looking at houses to buy. I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's becoming more common actually. Because we do we do like a you do a building check with like termites and stuff. But you don't yeah. do it. You know, you do also around is, is there asbestos there or yeah. ri- raising da- rising damp and things like that. But you don't do it in terms yeah. of toxicity. Well, damp's really a thing to to worry about so i guess lead paint damp is if you've got damp you've got mold and everybody's got mold in some way in sydney it's the air's just that humid mm. um but old buildings particularly have problems you refer you, you refer to your work designing homes uh for your clients as portraiture can you t- tell me a bit about that and what it is for you i think um that that beautiful thing about designing a home is that you're working directly with the client um and Lucian Freud has this beautiful quote where he says, everything is portraiture, everything is autobiography. And mm. I feel like in the um, expression of others in our work, we actually write our own story. Well, I'm, I think I'm in a cre- creative um, transition zone from working on those houses that are all about somebody else and all about an expression of their personality, their aspirations, um, their family. And as we move from doing a lot of houses to doing projects where we're not working for the end user, so we're doing a big commercial building on George Street, we're doing multi-unit residential, doing a hotel. When we're doing those, we've got to imagine multiple different users. How can I bring that suite of portraits, turn that into an autobiography Mm -hmm. and then um, still make it very specific and personal to place and to the city but ultimately it's not an expression of personality anymore. It's not a psychological expor- exploration. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, I think it's been a very rich exploration and will continue to be because mm. it means we can be really open when we approach things. And you talk about um, other projects you're doing overseas. Uh, tell us about uh, your, your project you're doing in Venice Beach or you've done in Venice Beach. Yeah, so that's, um, that's finished now. It's a house for an Australian family who um, he works in Hollywood and she's got an international business, a pretty amazing family, and that's a that's a beautiful family home. So they're Australians. They interviewed 11 local architects in California and the 11th one was like, well, if you're showing everybody Tribe Studios work, why don't you just call Tribe Studio? So Had you done their house here? No, we'd oh. not, never met. 
So um, they called and we went and designed <laughs> a house. <laughs> That's cool. It was pretty cool. Did you go to LA to look at the yeah, site and everything? A couple of times. So did a few kind of one-week charrettes. We'd go, I'd go over or the project architect on the job would go over. And we had a local collaborator who was helping us um, navigate the approvals process, which was the next level. They didn't... You couldn't work out what the submission requirements were from LA City Hall. They just wouldn't tell you unless you turned up in person. It's so archaic. It, it mm, um, The mind boggles. So it was and harder than here. Oh, so much harder than here. I mean, ultimately, if you're within the controls, the house will be approved. But then... The, those chicken and egg things that we've got here, like they had a good one, like you had to have a certain amount of water pressure in your in the sprinkler system to run the thing, and that had to come off the mains, but there wasn't that much pressure in the mains because the, all the infrastructure is broken. So it was it was um, it was a real lesson in red tape that one. Wow! Did yeah, it so compromise the design? No, no, the design's beautiful. It's um, it's um, it's really cool. So they had a little um, timber. Um, bungalow on the site. We originally looked at restoring and extending that, but it was past its use-by date. So we built a kind of new timber frame bungalow and elevated it up in the in the sky and then put some blade walls on the ground that capture five different gardens with individual personalities. Mm. And then this bedroom thing hovers above. Wow. It's cool. Is it on your website? No, not yet. The um, It was in Vogue Living last month, I think, and the... We'll put it up after it's – our client's got a um, – is the owner and co-founder of Armadillo & Co., the rug company. Ah. So they're, they're managing all the media on it. Okay. So when they finish with that, then it'll we'll be our turn. We have great rugs in there as well. It's got great rugs. So she's Australian too. She's Australian. Ah, I was wondering is why she? they were in the States because the, yeah. the, the showroom's there as well. Yeah. And you also worked on a project in Dubai? Yeah, so we collaborated with um, Alexander & Co., on a Sean's restaurant on the top floor of the Dubai Opera House. Really? Yeah. Wow. That was wild. And are you doing anything else in overseas? No, not at the moment. I mean, phone hasn't been oh. ringing hot from overseas this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Do you, do, you, do you enjoy working on projects overseas? Um, yes. Yeah, I do. It's really great to collaborate with... Um, you have to have a local collaborator, which is really mm-hmm. very interesting and rewarding. Um, yeah, so we enjoy working overseas. We've done a couple of little things in the UK as well. Uh, it's a trickier time difference in terms of phone calls, but yeah, and you talked about it's much easier um, now. You talk about working on larger scale projects now mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. How did you make that transition? Um, Just because someone asked you to do a larger project, you kind of yeah went with it or what? Yeah, basically said sure. Um, I think. Yeah, so really it's, uh, I think probably to, to circle back to your question about business, mm-hmm. I think I have waited to be asked to dance and, and it's the kind of work we've had has all been reactive. I've never mm-hmm. chased work and I think it's probably time to, to say, hey, we really like this city building stuff and we're, and we're doing lovely things. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be the next 10 years. And you're finally getting more of that anyways? So yeah, doing and it? it's happening organically. Yeah, yeah cool. And you said you're working on a hotel? Yeah. Is that a secret? Or it's what? a secret. Ah. I can't tell you. It's going to be amazing. Is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's got a large heritage component, a yeah. lot of entertainment venues. It's In Sydney? No. Outside of Sydney? can't tell you. <laughs> oh. I have to kill you. Oh, my God. There'd be blood on the studio you, walls. <laughs> is is mo- most of your work in Sydney? Uh, most of our work's in Sydney. Except for this place, of course. Well, yeah, and there's outside of Sydney. So we do... We've got a bunch of holiday houses outside of Sydney, Tasmania. What motivates you outside of work? Gosh, I'm so intrinsically motivated. It's like, um, I guess what do I enjoy out of work? I, my most enduring hobby has been reading novels. I love novels and poetry. Um, I like walking in the bush or and paddling. I like being on the water under my own steam. So I Pad- like paddleboarding. Yeah, I paddle water, kayak, I like to sail as well. Wow. Um, yeah. Don't, like a sailing boat? Yeah, I don't have a sailing boat, but I like to crew on, on boats. Oh, cool. I used to sail a little water. Out of rush cutters? Yeah. I mean, really, I'm in a kind of very low hobby stage of my life, so I get out of the <laughs> paddleboard when I can. 
that I'd be lying if I said Once. I'd sailed in the last five years. Maybe, <laughs> oh, maybe oh twice God. in the last five years, yeah. Okay, all right. So it's um, so hanging with my kids. I'm so not a workaholic. <laughs> okay, good. No way. Yeah. But I really love hanging with my kids. Yeah. I love playing cards with the kids, watching them play sport. What's your home like? Um, Presumably you've done we've it. Got, we've, yep, we've got, yep, we live in a little terrace house that we renovated about 10 years ago. And we just built a um, kind of prototype house in Bundina, which is a really um, crude um, and very relaxed little beach house prototype, which was built as a kit home that could be... I think there's been a huge success in modular building in Victoria where you deliver, like, whole houses. And we've had a lot of clients talk to us about modular building in New South Wales and our topography. You know, we've got the great dividing mm. range. We've got the windy roads. It's really expensive to bring a whole house yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. So we thought we'd try a kit home module where it could be all pre-cut timber, um, minimise waste and deliver that to site. So we we gave that a whirl. It's pretty cute. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so we weekend there. You still make it on site, but it's all cut. We make it on site, yeah. And I also like that that supports local labour as well. So it's got a social sustainability aspect. You talked about your sons being into sport. Is your, part, is your yeah. husband into sport as well? Yeah, he's, so, he, he's pretty so what, sporty. So, I mean, I find if I don't exercise for a long period of time, like several years, <laughs> no, I, I get I get this buildup of stress in, yeah. and, and not realizing what it is. So, I mean, just walking every day makes a big difference, but mm. running is huge for me. Yeah. Um, do you ex- do you kind of get the the cardio yeah, at I, all? Yes, I I walk a lot, incidentally, and I try to exercise every day. So I either do like a pretty full on Pilates class or a spin class. I think you've got to get really hot and sweaty three times a week to keep your heart healthy. That's mm. my that's my exercise mm. regime. You've always done that? Oh, look, there's no always, right? Because I think when the kids were babies, you just looked after babies and kept the business going and there were, there were only two things. Mm. Well, I suppose um, when I say kids, I mean family because, you know, investing in a happy relationship is is really important as well. And I think as the kids get older, there's just there's suddenly more room around the edges. So um, so I try to exercise every day, meditate every day. Oh wow, do you? Yeah. yeah. When when do you meditate? Five in the morning. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Before everybody's awake. Yeah, and then I don't always get to it, or I sleep in, or whatever. But I, you know, just sometimes I'll meditate in the garage at work or whatever, yeah, yeah. just to take a so moment really of silence. I think silence. Getting to silence is really important. Mm. So silence in your head yeah. as well. Yeah. So you, where you're listening, not talking so much. So it's interesting. I mean, I get up about 5, 5.30 now. Mm. I don't know, I'm, I'm going to bed at 9 most nights, which mm. is ridiculous. I'm the same. I used to stay up drawing until like 2 in the morning. I go, I'm doing my best work. And then I was exhausted and drank too much coffee, too much alcohol, and now I go to bed so early, like I'll pass out reading the kids a story. But I'm up and and bouncy and calm and clear early in the morning. Mm. So you don't drink? Not at the moment. I mean, COVID, I was I pickled myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a familiar story. Uh, how did you cope with COVID, by the way? It was it must um, be tough with the kids as well. Well, it was, it was um, I suppose from a work point of view, it was very stressful feeling. I think that that first month, it felt like the whole world was going to implode, which, mm. you know, most of the world did implode and we were very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, we decamped to Bundina, kids, took the kids out of school early and then stayed down there for an extra term. So um, it was actually pretty amazing to be able to walk on the beach and in the bush, mm. swim every day. So that was, um, that was good from a work point of view. It was very stressful. I think it felt like doing three times as much work to stay still. So that you know, constant kind of disaster cash flow planning and um, making sure we kept everybody's jobs secure, and then working out how to if it, get all the kit working from home, like the IT. Holy yeah, cow! Yeah. It was uh, it was a lot. I mean, we, lot. we all thought it was the end of the world, and, and it was yeah. the end of our businesses as yeah, well. Yeah, I think every we all went through that um, disaster zone, but the, the upshot. For the business, I mean, I think I re-engaged my scrappy little street fighter business mentality, which is probably good. Mm. Um, and then I think the best thing that's come out of it 
is this complete end of formality of work. So, you know, we're all pretending we didn't have families and other commitments and mm. there wasn't a degree of chaos at home. Mm-hmm. Um, we all thought we couldn't work from home or we couldn't work with that much flexibility, but ultimately we can. Yep. You know, our office is now kids and dogs everywhere, which is awesome. Everybody's got flexible hours in some way or another. And it just, you know, they're all incredibly intelligent, capable, talented adults in a creative field. Why on earth would we need to work with that kind of, you know, industrial rigidity? Did you feel, I kind of felt like it it wasn't that I didn't trust my staff, but now I do. (laughs) It's like you're going from that's how businesses run. You've got to be in there. We've got to see people working. Everyone's going to be together. I mean, there is a wonderful vibe with that. But there is that, you know, people are just as productive when they're making it work from home or coming in and out or, you know, managing their family or going doing some exercising or whatever it might be. Yeah. It just kind of works better. It's almost like like I, I've always worked like that mm. for since I started my business. I've always been kind of working wherever I am and making it work, whereas your staff tended to be, had to clock in and be yeah. there and be visible, whereas now everyone's working like I am. Which is great, I right? Good. Good I don't energy. know why we didn't think of it earlier. It some, makes so much did. sense for some people. For creativity. Do and they go, yeah. They made it work, and they and you go, oh, do you reckon that would work? Mm, yeah. You know, the thought of having p- our team having w- working from home one day a week was was unmanageable. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and I think it really suits some parts of architecture very well. So if you need long periods of uninterrupted concentration, yeah. Just to be able to do that at home is great. Mm. And then to come to work and, and have the, the dynamism of collaboration is really fantastic. Yeah. The other thing that Zoom taught was when our guys would share their screen so they're working in a 3D model of a building, you could just say pause there and draw over it with your finger oh. and the purple pencil. It was the best. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of for stop you. print. <laughs> but also for them it was just this incredible... Um, Interaction, I guess speed of um, creative collaboration. Mm, and the feedback. Yeah. That's so cool. No no print sketch. So what's happened with, has this influenced, has this changed how clients come to you to kind of, when they're doing a home now, is, is the kind of the brief change because of this? Well, I think the fear will be that people want to get bigger and bigger houses again, which is ultimately the least sustainable thing we can ah. do. So um, over the past 10 years before COVID, we were seeing the death of the home office. So people would have, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of filing zone for their medical records, but the laptop would move with them. Mm-hmm. But now with video conferencing and work from home, houses are growing again. Mm-hmm. And I think we also had a suite of um, briefs that came in with multiple home offices, gyms, you know, all those things we suddenly had to do from home that, People were wanting to um, enlarge their houses, and I think that's probably a worry. That would that would be a bad trend. That would be we've been houses have been getting smaller ever so slightly for the last ten years. For a while, there are Australian houses were larger than American houses, topping out at two hundred fifty per square meters on average for a new house, which mm-hmm. is crazy. English houses are like eighty six square meters. Yeah. So um, we've we've been seeing the trend come down. It, it would be really sad if it went up again. Do you think people having all this in their homes, like the gym and everything, are they are they healthier? Are they more likely to exercise? I don't know. There's something so nice about I mean, I've always been a kind of urban person, and I like that um, a lot of my life happens within a community. Mm. I love walking to school. I didn't know I wanted a community until I had kids at school, and suddenly you've got this, you know everybody. Our mm. home, work, and school are all within 100 metres of each other. We know all the business owners, all the parents, all the kids nice. in the streets. It's really lovely. So that idea of a um, kind of home that you press a button, drive into, and you don't have to leave all weekend because everything is there, to me that seems really sad. But, you know, it suits some people, I guess. Um, you talked a lot about having a collective approach. How important is it for you to, you to collaborate with the right people, from clients to staff and so on? I think there's a real magic um, in collaboration and... You know, we're starting to do this quite weird thing for design meetings within the office, which is instead of to sit down with the pencils, actually to take a walk. And so one person will describe something or describe a problem and somebody will describe a solution. And in a verbalisation of a design, we all imagine different things. Mm. And in that space between what we're imagining, 
we're finding is whether where something truly innovative happens. I think innovation's an overused word, but we might we might break through by um, hovering in that space of imagination without drawing anything for a bit longer, mm. which I think is really interesting. So that's I'm super cool. interested in that, and that's a kind of idea about meditation. It's the space between the thoughts where the magic happens, and what happens if we explore that the void. Or is the that with the client or with your team? Um, we wouldn't. But that's, with the, that's within the team, so that's in the architectural team. But I think there's something to be said about that with our collaborators, so with structural engineers particularly and landscape architects. Um, with the client, it's really an idea of deep listening and interrogation to really try and understand where they're trying to go. And you talk about thinking in a deep way as well. I guess that's related to what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it would... It would be um, easy but ultimately unsatisfying to operate in a space of fashion or trend in the built environment. And I think um, the current set of circumstances, climate crisis, um, affordability crisis in um, Sydney in particular, we just there's an onus on us to think about it more deeply, to do better and ultimately to you know, reflect where we are as humans. So I was going to wonder if there is there room for generosity in design and construction in Sydney's cutthroat property market, mm. where budgets are run at a shoestring and the cost of entry is so high. I mean, it's becoming unbelievably expensive here. It's a disaster. How, do, how do the younger generation navigate that? I have no idea. I think it, it well, you, needs you an, immediate meant attention. <laughs> meant to have an idea. <laughs> Let's go for a walk it's and an talk over. about yeah, it. I think, I think it, that's, yeah, you need to walk and talk about that one. I think there's some really interesting things happening in Melbourne mm-hmm. um, and there's certainly fantastic things happening with, you know, co-housing and alternative housing models in um, in Europe, particularly in your Northern Europe. They're doing really innovative things and there are things that have been happening since the 70s that just don't seem to be able to get off the ground in Sydney. I know there are a lot of people working on it. Why is that, do you think? Uh, I think our property prices are so high and I think we all... I don't think we can stop ourselves thinking about property as asset. Our tax structures are broken. They, you know, people will invest in their home and not move out of a house that's the wrong size for them because that's a capital gains tax-free investment. Mm. That's a disaster. I think negative gearing is a disaster for people entering the housing market. I think uh, um, rental and tenancy system is a disaster for young people because you like there would be nothing wrong with renting for a long period except you can't get more than a six-month lease and you can't hang a picture. So yeah, I think exactly. it's all, it's broken. The tax system's broken and causing problems. I think our values are broken and causing problems. I think um, commercial developers have really raced to the bottom and they're getting held to account now a bit more with the with the certification laws. But I think we've also had a generation of really junky horrible buildings built Mm. that are going to create the slums of the future through strata laws so we've got a lot of problems and it's got a lot of people thinking about them i'm interested to see what happens next let's have that walk i don't think the property in sydney's ever gone down in value has it no it's just continually going up like in london I guess, how, how do you save up for it? I mean, it's impossible Just, to save up yeah. as, if the prices, the houses keep going up mm. all the time. And we and it's creating this, or it's exacerbating the um, wealth divide. And we're going to become like the Americans. I mean, Bernie Sanders wrote this great article in The Guardian yesterday. And Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos together have more wealth than the bottom 20% of Americans. Wow. And that's messed It's obscene, up. isn't it? It's obscene. It should just be redistributed. Yeah. Having said that, I bet you'd like to design his house. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be a decent budget. It'd have a lot of cast bronze elements in it, that house. Yeah. It'd be on the moon or something. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, do you ever say no to projects? Yeah, we say no a lot. We say no do more, you? more than we say yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, what's the filter on that? Um, I think when... A, well, for houses, it's well, there are two things. So for houses, if um, if we go and visit a site and that already has a house on it, if the clients don't offer me a glass of water, we don't do it. <laughs> That's one filter number one. And filter number two is if it's if they've got um, really, I think um, there's a lot 
in a house that can be a um, status posturing exercise that I, I don't want to be involved in. Just go back to the water one because I'm yeah. intrigued by that. So what, what does that represent to you if someone doesn't offer you water? If they're not going to offer the architect water, how are they going to treat the carpenter and the labourer? You know, If we become this team of people working for them and there's no um, effort to hospitality or generosity, mm. then it's, it's going to be bad for the people down the chain. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because they're, they're building a home to be a host in their own home. When do they start being a host? Some people yeah. are just aren't naturally hosts, I guess. Mm. But also, it can mean that maybe you know the architects visiting is another um, part of a a servant role, which means it won't be a true collaboration. Mm. So it feels to me like they wouldn't be entering the relationship from a place of mutual respect, potentially. So. And do you say that? And often I just I talk too much. I get thirsty. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because we, we worked for a, a, a big airline. I can't say who it is. But I remember being in meetings with them in their headquarters. And they they never offered us anything. You should have said no to the job. Well, I will now going <laughs> forward. Um, but it was surprising. I thought it would be like someone come around with a trolley. <laughs> you know? Get a chicken or fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Uh, well, that's interesting. I, I, I've... Very rarely say no, unless it's yeah, something right. that is uh, a project that could be kind of damaging the earth or yeah. a complete asshole, which is not very often these days. But doesn't that mean you've got an infinite growth model? Like if you keep saying, or maybe it's probably a different delivery method. So if we say yes. Ours are quicker turnarounds. Yeah, like we've got such a long turnaround. That's true. And the bulk of the work happens a year down the line. Mm. So that getting from council approval to ready to build is a really labour-intensive part. And um, if if we take on too many projects, we have to grow too much, too rapidly. Cool. So I've got to be quite precise about it. What defines a well-designed home for you? I know it's a, like a badly designed home is just poorly thought out and poorly built. Mm-hmm. Um, a well-designed home is careful and considerate and generous. It's reflective, right. reflective of... Um, people's lives but then I mean the thing about a home as opposed to other building types is they really take on the personality of the people who live there and um, how much of what we do is kind of background set design that allows them to then prop the prop the stage to to play out their lives and how much is re- how much do they want us to be really present in the action isn't it amazing the energy you get from a building like yours when you walk into one of your homes compared to a box or compared to something which is kind of done on the cheap or you know mm. not the same light and material and all that that feeling imagine living i mean obviously not everyone can afford to live in a mm. well-designed space i mean unfortunately mm. what i mean why why shouldn't everybody live in a well-designed mm. space that's i think big question yeah isn't it? i think that's a that's a really good question i think in sydney you know no one can afford to live anywhere so <laughs> well-designed or not um construction in australia is really expensive and the labor's the expensive part. So I think um, developing a suite of um, details, architectural details that are actually quick to construct is part of that. Whereas as you get more mastery as an architect, you want to be more elaborate and you want to work with the best craftspeople. Mm. So there's a tension there, I think, in our creative practice. Mm. Um, the Bandina home we did is really, really um, affordable. It's an experiment in in affordable architecture, but ultimately it's still twice the cost of a project home. They can just churn out that rubbish mm. so cheaply and but it doesn't make your heart sing. I think that thing about walking into a well-designed home that makes you feel better. Mm. Um, and when you feel better, you're kinder and you spread good juju. It makes you live better, doesn't it? Makes it makes you live better, yeah. So have you designed your life? Um, that's, I love this question. I think um, as a designer, you think about a design exercise as taking a set of constraints and a problem, working out if any of those constraints are within your power to influence or change and mm. what you have to accept and then working out what to do with it. So, yeah, to that extent, I have I have designed my life and I treat it as an evolving design problem. I treat the business as my evolving design exercise and um, life as a as a fun, engaging design process. Well, on that note, um, 
that's the end of the podcast but thank you so much Hannah thanks for having me cool thanks for listening to the fourth episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers the life of an architect the Tribe studio founder Hannah Tribe tune in for the next week's episode we'll be catching up with William Smart one of Australia's most celebrated architects and founder of Smart Design Studio thank you all for listening If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe.